Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. There is an official Other People app. That too is free. Everything's free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Just Hi, one everybody. How's it going? Hey, hello. This is the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles, California. I have Andre the Third on the program. He is uh, one of our finest writers. He's the author of uh, House of Sand and Fog. And uh, the bestseller, made into a movie. You know that one, right? House of Sand and Fog. His latest novel is called Gone So Long. And it is available now from W.W. W. Norton and Company. So, Andre Debuse, the third, momentarily. I, uh, I'm back. I was traveling again this week. I was up in Seattle again. And for listeners who uh, live up that way, uh, a few of you have written to me and said like, hey, you know, let's get a drink or a coffee or something if you're up this way. I was so busy. I didn't have time for anything. Uh, I was working. So uh, forgive me, but it just isn't possible when I'm on these uh, business trips. It's like full, it's full bore. But it was lovely in Seattle. It was autumnal. It was gray. There was some mist. It was like uh, exactly what you would expect from Seattle. There's lots of coffee, a chill in the air, beautiful vistas. It's a lovely city. I had, uh, have not been, you know, I've, I've been there twice now over the past month and, uh, I had not been there prior, but I'm a fan of Seattle. A listener named Asdrin wrote to me. He says, Dear Brad, I was wondering if the gender of your guests is a consideration when deciding who to interview. I find that I relate more to male authors, perhaps as a guy myself, but I noticed that there have been a lot of female authors lately, and I was wondering if this was intentional. Thank you. 
Sincerely, Asdrin. Yeah, it's intentional. I, but I think it's been intentional from uh, day one with this show. I always intended to have uh, gender balance and to talk to women and men in something close to equal measure. I think we're, you know, we're, we're pushing almost 550 episodes at this point, and I haven't done the math recently, but I think if you looked at the, at the episode guide and broke it down, I've probably talked to more women than men on this program. Not by a lot, but you know, I have, uh, I think women make up the majority of my guests on this show, which, you know, I, uh, I'm happy about. Women also make up the majority of readers of uh, literary fiction and nonfiction. With that in mind, it seems to make sense that I would talk to a lot of women on this program. And I love talking to women. I like talking to men too, but I really do enjoy talking with women. I grew up with sisters. You know, it's that whole thing. I've, I've said this before. I've always had female friends and I like it. Like at a party talking with women. I like women. <laughs> I, I genuinely like them. I also like men. I like people. But uh, yes, Asdrin, uh, to answer your question, it is intentional. And uh, I hope it continues. That's the aim. A listener named Janet writes, Dear Brad, regarding your conversation with Megan O'Giblin in episode 548, I like how you get people to talk about stuff that matters to them at a depth that makes their conversation meaningful. I notice that you return often to questions of spirituality and religion with your guests, especially with those who, like you, decoupled their caboose from their parental train and went seeking for enlightenment in the great train yard. <laughs> uh, I think of it this way, Brad. The word of God is one thing. Religion is people trying to make sense of it. Looking to religion for answers is dicey business and requires a high level of skepticism and scrutiny. It can only propose solutions for understanding the riddle of the divine. Love the show. If you can't keep it up until you're 90, at least keep it up until I am. Signed, Janet. Thanks, Janet. I don't disagree. I think there are a lot of paths to the mountaintop. I tend to believe that all the world's Major religions are, are at their best kind of saying the same thing. I also feel that there's no substitute for uh, the experiential. Taking a high degree of personal responsibility for one's own spiritual education. So yeah, I think we agree. I think... There's a lot of value in the uh, spiritual and religious traditions that exist. There's also a lot of toxicity and criminality and wrongheadedness. But the good stuff is worth paying attention to. Yeah, I don't think you need to start from scratch and try to figure it all out from zero. There's millennia of uh, human exploration and deep thinking to draw from in all of these different traditions. So it seems like a worthwhile exercise to me anyway to go in and try to suss that out. Take what you can, build on it.
So thank you, Janet. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm glad you enjoyed my conversation with Megan. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Andre Debus III. Uh, and speaking of spiritual stuff, I think he and I, if I'm recalling correctly, I think we get into some of that stuff too. He was wonderful in conversation and a very generous guest. And it's just nice of him to make time to come over on his book tour. Very pleased about it and uh, happy to share this conversation with you. His new novel is called Gone So Long. It's available now from W.W. W. Norton and Company. Here he is, folks. This is Andre Debuse Third. Well, I, I would like to start by saying that, you know, the main character in that this new novel, Gone So Long, did the worst thing possible to human being. He murdered his wife in a jealous rage. Uh, he'll never be able to take that back. Um, and writing this novel, you know, it sounds like bumper, bumper sticker Christianity, but I've, I've learned over the years to hate the sin and not the sinner. I think we are all one. We're all capable of horrible things and beautiful things, but I wouldn't elevate him to the Supreme fucking court. <laughs> Can I just say, right. <laughs> you know, um, no, I don't want to go off too much on Kavanaugh because I'll get really uh, angry and start to swear too much. But, you know, to elevate him to the Supreme Court just is the, 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 the it's a megaphone for patriarchy. What it's saying is women, we don't give a shit about you. Right. Girls and women, you will always be second place. And you're here for our pleasure and fucking sit down and shut up until we want you to come over here and give us some pleasure. It is an outrage. I have a daughter, I have two sons, I have four sisters, a wife, I have hundreds of female friends. I am furious that right. this piece of shit is now the Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Well, and it's like, uh, you know, I think you said it best. It's like, okay, this guy's transgressed. Like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's rehabilitated all that well based on his performance in front of the Judiciary Committee seems like there's still a lot of uh, rage in there. But, but you, go ahead. You know what I saw that really got me? What was I saw, uh, you know, and for the, for the beginning, I, I saw, um, you know, Blasey Ford's testimony, and I was, like everyone, completely riveted by its 
evident veracity, emotional veracity. And then I watch his, or I actually listen to his on NPR while driving a long distance. And for the first 20, 30 minutes, I said, well, this guy's got me too. What do you do now? And then he began to keep going, and he began to show his side. He began to show all his uh, saying no to FBI investigation, but it also began to show his belligerence and his right-wing uh side. What I'm getting at is what I saw was, wow, here's a white privileged male who's never had a real obstacle in his life. And now suddenly someone's going to try to ooh, take something from him. And he's him. a big goddamn baby. Wow, somebody is shutting the door in my face. You know, try being a young black man for five minutes, you piece of garbage. We should probably change the subject because I get so angry. <laughs> Me too. Me oh, too. I get so angry. And we're white males. Yeah. But we're not this guy. You know, and like Thank goodness. I don't know. It's just, it's, it, there's so much anger in the air. Right. And that's what I'm trying to breathe through because now we must go to the next place. Right. And where is that? Well, I think we need to vote a bunch of women into office. Right. And we need to, to fight in the streets in a way that's not taking blood. You know, you're mentioning earlier my own, my own life. You know, I grew up like too many people in scrappy, violent circumstances and I learned a lot, and I'm still, as a 59-year-old man, trying to come to terms, terms with what I learned. Uh, but one thing I learned is that we're all capable of bad behavior. So can you, for listeners who might not have context, like explain a little bit about your yeah. youth, which you wrote about in your memoir, Townie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, um, like most Americans, or I think 56%, my family divorced when I was young. And, uh, you know, my mother and father eloped when they're 18 and 20 years old. And they're from South Louisiana. Every relative I have is from South Louisiana. My parents are from South Louisiana. Oh, they are? Where are they from? My dad's from Morgan City. And my mom is from Plaquemine, which is Baton Rouge. And then Morgan Shit, City. Shit, man, we might be cousins. You never know. <laughs> no, you never know. <laughs> right? And so my, my mother goes to her father, who never went past the third grade, he was a pipe fitter, and she told him she's eloping from this guy, with this guy, Andre Debus and Lafayette. And he said, well, there ain't been no damn divorces in this family. And if this don't work out, you ain't coming home. And nine years and four kids later, it went south. And I watched my mom do what too many, many millions of women have to do. She, she, got a, she did it herself. And I'm not saying my, my dad was not a deadbeat dad by any stretch, but it was a 70s divorce. He, he, he left, he got an apartment, got a, you know, he was making $7,000 a year as a full-time professor, seven grand. Now, that's a lot, that was a lot more in the 60s when they split up, but it wasn't enough for a family of six. So we went from being poor to poorer. Ugh. And um, my mom got a job as a nurse's aide and a waitress. She started to work her way through school. She ended up getting a degree uh, where the big money is in social services, and um, I'm proud of that. And she ended up working with poor families for her whole career. But we moved two to three times a year for cheaper rent. And... Um, and I was always the new kid. I went to about 14 schools before I got to high school. And we ended up living in some really tough neighborhoods. By tough, I mean people with no jobs, people, uh, I mean, a lot of single moms, dad's gone, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of violence, a lot of scrappy moments. And I remember being afraid. When I look back at my childhood, there's a wonderful line from Tobias Wolff's wonderful memoir, This Boy's Life, where he said, every memory has its own story to tell. And I'm sure I must have had moments of joy and, um, you know, exaltation as a kid. But what comes to me most are two predominant emotions. One is 
physical fear. I was always scared of getting beat up. And let me make, there's a caveat here. I was not worried about getting shot five times in the chest for standing on the wrong corner. There's right. too many kids, mainly brown-skinned kids, are, who faced, uh, face that crap today, that horror today. But I did face physical violence daily and um, face getting beat up just for being, you know, the small new kid around the block. The other predominant feeling was self-hatred. I, de- I despised myself because I was a physical coward. Anyway, I'll compress. Uh, my brother was beaten up by a grown man when he was 13 and I was 14, and I couldn't defend him. And I snapped, and I began to to uh, change my life. I was a kid who drank and smoked and did drugs like all my friends. At age and 13. 13, 14, 15. But I, I did every drug between 13 and 16 but heroin and speed. But that was normal for my neighborhood. Everyone, and this is the uh, early 70s. It's interesting. I'm a member of the generation. We were 10 years too young for Vietnam, but 10 years older than Generation Xers. We were in this in-between little generation where, uh, you know, Vietnam had moved on. The party had moved on around the, the, the movement against it. But we had hair. I had hair down on my waist. I wore dingo boots. I carried Southern Comfort in my boot like Janis Joplin. And um, we were all having sex at 11, 12, 13. This is not good. You know, I lost my virginity at 13, and I was late in my neighborhood. My point is, I started to fight back, and um, I began to lift weights. I began to box. Much to my surprise, I I had athletic ability. And um, one night, I knocked the teeth out of a man who pushed my brother down the stairs. And it felt so so good, I did it for like 10 years. Don't get me wrong, I hated bullies but i would go looking for bullies i look i go to a bar you're like the avenger I, I, you, almost you could put a freaking cape and mask on me it was almost comical except I, it was meant so much to me I, I go to a bar i wait for some guy to backhand his wife or his girlfriend sadly I, that wasn't hard to find that kind of behavior and i put him in the hospital or try to um i go to a house party i wait for some big guy to lord over some smaller guy and i jump on him and i i never got bigger than about 160 pounds my, and I wasn't a I wasn't a, a badass. I was I was just so toxic with self loathing. I would rather die a violent death than see a coward in the mirror. It made me it made me a very dangerous kid and young man. And I did it for about a decade. And you know, we all have this wonderful quiet voice inside us that knows what's right. You know, if you look at the word intuition, I don't know if it's the Latin or Greek, but it but you know what the meaning of it is? You know what it means? It means to watch over or to guard. And that, so I got a lot of social rewards. The local police love me because I'm wailing on guys. They wanted to but couldn't without losing their badges. <laughs> Girls started to pay attention to me. I actually had a reputation as a tough kid instead of uh, all those names they call kids who don't fight. And uh, But I knew I was going to die doing this, or maybe worse than that, I was going to kill someone. Right. So I started to box as a way to control my violence. I said, well, I'm no longer afraid of fighting. I'm afraid of not fighting. So... I'm not going to go anywhere where it's easy to find a fight, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. It'll be my sport. So I started to train for the Golden Gloves down in Lowell, Mass. I was living in a tough town in north of Boston. It's still a tough town, Lynn, Mass. And they have this saying about Lynn, 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 the city of sin. You don't come out the way you went in. <laughs> and I was working construction with my brother. I'm 23 years old. And one night... Brad, and you know, I have a hard time believing in a, a, a single God, but I've, I've never had a hard time believing in the divine. 
I believe there's something quite beautiful in and around us at all times. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, th- yeah this loving and beautiful, and, and every human being is worthy of respect across the globe. Something, I was, tr- I was dressed up, it's a winter, three degrees outside New England. I was you know, at 6 o'clock at night, work construction all night, and pl- all day. I'm planning to run two miles to the gym, train for two hours, run back, and something made me sit my butt down in my little chair, in my little shitty rented kitchen in my little shitty walk-up apartment Lynn Mass and I grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil I brewed a cup of tea and I started to write from the point of view of a young woman losing her virginity with her brother in the woods in Maine to this day I don't know where that came from I have no idea where that impulse came from that's an interesting opening gambit yeah <laughs> and I took a sip of the tea and I, it had been boiling now it's room temperature and I think I thought I was writing 10 minutes it was clearly over an hour and here's the thing I felt more like me than I'd ever felt in my life. Huh. And I knew then that I had to keep... I didn't, I'm, I'm not saying I wanted to be a writer that night, but I knew that I wanted to keep writing sentences. And also right after that, almost immediately, I stopped wanting to punch people in the face. And I realized... I mean, I still got into a few more uh, fights over the years, but it was always... I mean, the last fight I was in, uh, a grown man was beating up his beautiful young wife with his fists in the street. And people were watching, and I jumped in and stopped it and did more than that, And um, which I'm not totally proud of. But my, my point is, um, when I began to write from the point of view of other human beings, you know, when you do that, it's, it's, it's a sustained act of empathy where you're asking, what's it like to be you? I found that it was, it, it, if I did that for 90 minutes in the morning before whatever job I had, it was really hard to punch someone in the face that night, even if he'd done something heinous. I realized that I, I was on the road to looking at people far more in a gray light than a black and white. And as a young kid and an angry one at that, you know, I saw people and, you know, I saw, I saw people as good guys and bad guys. And I have not. I do not believe in good guys and bad guys anymore. And I haven't for about 40 years now. Yeah. And like you talk about self-loathing. Uh, do you think that like that's at the heart of all violent people, especially violent men? I think I think there's a lot of self-loathing. Um, there's deep insecurity. Well, that's in tandem, right? Um, fear. There's so much fear. You know, um, I've I've given talks at prisons and county jails, and I've worked in halfway houses, and I love being in a room with a bunch of punks, people who, I mean. We call them gangsters now, but I mean, young men, uh, young men who are out there who scare everybody. And I'm not saying they're not capable of scaring me, especially if they're packing a piece. But those guys, I really like to be in a room with because you were one of them. I was one of them. And you can see if you just look in their eyes, you can see the five year old boy who's still stuck there. Right. You know, and, and and I know it's a little reductive to look at it this way, but the majority of them have not been loved well growing up. There hasn't been a lot of steady, stable love in their lives. And I and I, I think they're all salvageable. I really do. Yeah. Well, well you know, and it's like uh, even somebody who's done the worst thing, yeah. um, like, uh, you know, Supreme Court aside. Mm-hmm. The level of empathy with which you treat a murderer, mm. 
you know, it plays a trick on the reader in a way because you find yourself, you know, like liking the guy or, right. or, or feel, having complicated feelings. <laughs> yeah. You know, because the, the, the full humanity is there. And uh, I think about that a lot because there's a lot of, in, in a very good way, there's a lot of uh, pointing out of bad behavior, especially in online communities, social media. I think I'm more aware of people who have transgressed Mm-hmm. in volume than I maybe ever have been. Mm-hmm. And part of me, I think I like to be aware. I don't want to live in the dark. You know, mm-hmm. I want to know when things are happening and when people have been mistreated. But right. that also then presents to me the problem of like what to do with it. Right. Like, how am I supposed to feel? How long do I hang on to this? Like, Well, I, can I, I speak to that? Yeah. Because it seems to me... So, you know, I've been writing now for, I don't know, 36 years, five, six days a week. And... You know, trying to write from the point of view of other people, mainly as a fiction writer. And if I've learned nothing else, you know, what I, you know, what, you know where it's taken me. Where's that? It's taken me to the belief that there is no other anywhere ever. That we are all one. I mean, I feel that in almost like a viscous way, like you and I just met. But I feel like you're right here in my molecules, as as is. You know, somebody from another uh, ethnic type or race or gender or sexual preference or religious affiliation. I just feel one with all men, women and kids and people in between picking their gender. I don't feel above anyone in this world. The deeper, the more I've written, I just feel we're all one big soup and we must love one another. You know, um, one of my favorite lines is from a Tom Waits song. Heart Attack and Vine, where he says, there is no devil, there's just God when he's drunk. And, you know, that's blasphemy to some ears. That's blasphemy to a lot of Christian ears here in the States. But that that line could get me for quoting it and Tom Waits for writing it, shot and imprisoned, shot and or imprisoned around the world right now. And, you know, God bless the First Amendment. But, you know, you talk about what to do with it. I, you know, I'm not on social media. I, I don't, I, I'm a, a lot of what, to me, it's all static on the radio, so I stay away. But I, I am so hesitant to, oh, what's the word? You know, you, you see you see a horrible event, and, and please understand, I, I used to be a vigilante. I, I, I hate violence against people i especially hate male violence against women and kids and and then when 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 someone perpetrates this evil what you hear is well he he he's an evil man or she's just pure evil and i i just reject those out of hand no i'm sorry it's 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 a luxury to look at human beings that way uh you know, you and I are in this room. I said this, the better example is, is I was having this talk with somebody, I don't know, a few days ago, and I forget where I was, I'm on a book tour, but it was a, it was a group of people, it was a 100 or 200 people in a room, and we we're talking about this very thing about good, because the main character, as you know, in Gone So Long, murdered his wife. I said, look, if we shut the doors, so somebody locked the doors to this theater right now, in six weeks, just a handful of us are walking out of here. And I don't want to think about what we got to do to do it, you know. Right. And you consider yourselves very nice people right now, but you might be strangling and eating the person next to you in about four weeks, you know. 
And, and I do believe that the saints among us are the ones who, when, when they're... Look, let me just say, you know, when I've got, you know, a nice little cushion in the bank account, and my wife and I are getting along, and my car starts right up, and, you know, my coffee's perfect temperature, I'm nice to everybody. Right. But if I'm broke... My wife and I are bickering. My car doesn't start up. My coffee's cold. Get the fuck out of my way, man. Right. And and I think that's the case for so many of us. And so, you know, I forget. It was some great poet who said, oh, my God, who was it? It was a really beautiful poet. I read poetry every day. Uh, I forget who it was. But, you know, be very gentle to those whose path you cross because you never know what battle. Everybody is fighting a great battle inside. And I do believe that's the case. Right. Right. And so it's like, you know, I think of, uh, you know, I remember, I guess I could, what comes to mind when I think of, uh, extreme violence, like man, man versus man or man against man. Uh, it's like terrorism, mm-hmm. you know, these are kind of like some of the more overt examples of it. And it's very tempting to sit there and want to like psychoanalyze and be like, why, what, how, how do these people form? And then you have, certain people and certain voices in the media and in our politics or whatever, who are saying like, you're soft. If you're psychoanalyzing them, there's evil in the world and we have to, you know, and, and, and I would say they're soft. They're soft in the head. They're unsophisticated thinkers. Ted Cruz famously said something like, well, if we do just this and this, oh, we're going to take care of ISIS because they'll, they'll know they'll all be killed. I said, listen, you moron, do some research. <laughs> These people consider the, that their wedding day. The day of their death is their wedding day, jihad. They are marrying Allah. They're going to Jannah. They're going to paradise. Read a book. Um, yeah, I, I refute all of that way of thinking about the world. Let me just make something very clear. Um, Hemingway has a great line from a letter he wrote to his editor, Maxwell Perkins, at Scribner's. He said, Max, the job of the writer is not to judge, but to seek to understand. Now, I'm not suggesting, I don't think Hemingway was suggesting that writers are less judgmental, more compassionate, more loving people than other, other people. He could certainly be a bombastic asshole. But I think what he was saying was, um, that the writer, if you're going to write this kind of character-driven fiction that I know that I've been trying to write my whole adult life, you better summon your, to paraphrase Lincoln, the better angels of your nature. You better be more tolerant when you write, more merciful, more compassionate, a better listener, less judgmental above all. But let me say something, man. I think those 9-11 hijackers, and when I wrote my novel, The Garden Last Days, which came out in '08. Um, one of the main characters is sort of a composite of, you know, as you know, 14 of the hijackers were from uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia, 15 of them, four were uh, from Egypt, the pilots were from Egypt. And the other kids, they were brainwashed boys from the southwestern provinces of the most strict Muslim country uh, on the planet. I read the Quran twice. I read 33 books about the Mideast and Egypt and Saudi Arabia. I spent six months preparing and then i began to step into the private skin of one of these madmen and 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 what am i getting at i concluded they were brainwashed boys and if you can brainwash a boy you can unbrainwash a boy that's not to say if one of these brainwashed madmen were walking down the aisle of a plane trying to kill me and take me from my kids and wife I'd cut his throat from stem to stern. 
I'd stab him 15 times. I'd do whatever I have to do to stop his madness. I wish I wouldn't have to. And that's what I mean about hate the sin, not the sinner. If it comes, if, you know, and that's where these guys are just so full of it with their, your soft. Guess what? You can be a warrior and a thinker. You can be someone who would like to stop this young brainwashed kid before he gets on the plane or wherever he's going with his bomb strapped to him. Uh, but, you you know, you can also love him and try to stop him. And if it's too late, well, you're going to have to stop him any way you can because, you know, life is precious. He's not going to kill me. Well, so there's a way to be strong and vulnerable and smart and sensitive and have a larger view than these rednecks in their cowboy boots with their stupid uh, – don't get me going. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's also – you talk about the terrorists that make the news or the 9-11 terrorists that we all uh, read about or whatever – but it's it's obviously uh, they're they're just a small sample. It's a bigger thing. Oh my God! Of course. So like I think like in trying to understand what motivates like an individual set of them uh, or an individual, it you're trying to get to the root of how do we actually address this. It's you can't just yeah. drop. You can't shoot your way out of it at some point, right? No, of course, of course not. I mean, and and, and in that case, the only way to ultimately stop it is to find a way to, you know, and, and this sounds soft to, to, to people who want to live in the luxury of black and white thinking, um, but you've got to find a way to show them that we are one as, as, a, as mankind. Well, how do you do that? It's, a, it's the long game. It's going to take decades. Um, you know, famously, one of the uh, hijackers, he was one of the ones caught in the Midwest who was on a train and probably was going to hop a... a, a hijack another plane he was interviewed by fbi agents and he actually said to them you don't have horns they say excuse me we were told you have horns coming out of your head i mean it was that ridiculous right and um yeah i'm with you man you know but this is the point of literature right this is the point of of the reading life it's especially the point of your literature well like you've investigated this at length uh your whole career you know, and I think it's like, I mean, I can see the through line. You obviously can mm-hmm. see it, right? It goes back to your youth, the experiences that you've had, trying to explore this and understand it and show it to people in different mm. iterations. But let me give you, but, but let me tell you something really tough. And, and this, is, this is me trying to hold the gray. And, and I do think it's something an adult needs to do. You know, it is luxurious for us to, to think in black and white terms about humanity. The whole idea for this novel, Gone So Long, came from a lunch I had with a convict. And um, I was working on a screenplay, five years in the making, based on a, on a real convict doing real time in a Massachusetts prison. It's a long story I won't go into, but I was hired by a magazine to write a piece, and then I was retained to write the screenplay. And I'm not a screenwriter, but I was teaching myself. It wasn't a it wasn't a good screen. You know, you know, as you know, one minute per page is you know. Right. Yeah, that first draft was like 190 pages. <laughs> All right, so it's a mini series, whatever. <laughs> I like novels better. Anyway, so I interview this guy who done time with my protagonist, and I'm buying him lunch, and and he gave me a great bunch of wonderful details to work with. And as I'm buying, paying the lunch, I said, I, I'm sorry, it's none of my business. But how come you did time? And this is a man in his 60s who was very likable, very warm, very unassuming, had a, just a lovely, frankly, gentle demeanor. He said, oh, I killed my wife. Now, 
in townie i go into this but i i especially specialized in going out at night looking for anyone who was going to hurt a woman i it just it, to me it's the height of bullying to use your male violence against a woman or a child and so here i am he hits all my buttons with that answer and i just take a breath and put the money down and i just want to get out of the restaurant as fast as i can but i said uh you have kids he said oh yeah but they don't want to see me and i couldn't brad get that sentence out of my head for like three years wow and i wanted nothing to do with it right because um i didn't want to step in number one i didn't want to step into his private skin I didn't. I didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't want anything to do with the awful human situation. I'm a father. I'm a husband, and yet, if I've learned nothing from writing all these years, I've learned to follow what pulls you, even if you don't want to go there. You know, Blaise Pascal, the 16th century philosopher, poet, mathematician, inventor, said, "Anything written to please the author is worthless." I mean, that's not to say that we can't enjoy what we're doing, but I do think what the writer wants has to come second. What the characters want has to come first. Flaubert said that too. Gustave Flaubert said, you know, the, the, the writer doesn't choose his subject. The subject chooses the writer. So as I began to work my way in... Um, but wait, stop for a second. Yeah. At what point did you finally reconcile yourself to the fact that you were going to do this? Like, what does that process look like? Where you finally realize, oh, this is a book and I've got to do this and damn it. <laughs> yeah. You know, the honest answer is I don't remember that moment. I remember the opening moments of, um, well, you know, I do. Um, I began other ideas. Well, I've got, I've got other things I want to write about and I'd start them and they felt like, you know, building a movie set held up by telephone poles. They come back with the chainsaws, the next day they cut it down, it falls down. There's nothing behind it. One of the things I found over the years that I talk about in writing classes is, when it comes to fiction, I think there's a difference between making it up and imagining it. Right? So you and I, can we can play a parlor game. We had like 10 other people in this room. I come up with the first sentence. You come up with the second. We go around, we could tell a fun story. It's actually a f fun game over a ball of wine, but... And, you know, I know that story conferences, writers do that all the time. And sometimes it works, but often it doesn't. And, and I think it doesn't because you can feel the writers spinning the web. And you can feel, you know, sometimes very smart, talented, hardworking people coming up with very plausible scenarios. It's a nice web. But it's not. But it feels more entertaining than real. Right. And to me, imagining is I keep seeing the way the light hit my grandfather's face when I was six, sitting on the porch with the rain outside. I don't want to write about my grandfather, but I'm going to step into that because that's what I keep seeing. And the same is true of the dream world you step into as a fiction writer. Um, so I, I, I pushed aside what I was working on that just began to feel made up. It just, you know, I worked really hard on whatever I started too, two or three. Uh, possible ideas for stories and you know the sentences were decent but i it just felt forced and i kept hearing but they don't want to see me so i just sat there and i was terrified and um still, still like at this point in all your these career, years all these years still terrified never stop being terrified which is why i still love it so much there's a wonderful line from uh Flannery O'Connor, she says, there is a certain grain of stupidity the writer can hardly do without. 
and that is the quality of having to stare. So I stared, she goes on to say, writing is waiting. So I stared, and I stared, and I waited, and I began to see this man in his 60s, physically ill, cane in a chair in the sun. I began to describe that, and I find out very early, like in the first week of writing, that he has not laid eyes on his daughter since she was three. She's now 43, and he wants to go see her before he dies. But here's what I want to get to. Writing from his point of view, I was I had to suspend all judgment the way you do. And very quickly, what came from me, from my center to him, was my love of my daughter, my daughter. Hmm. And, and the question was, God damn, what if I'd missed her entire life because right. of something horrible I'd done? That's what now, I was thinking, too, when yeah. I was reading. I was oh, like, good. Uh, yeah. It's well, just something you have, if you have a kid, especially if you have a daughter, it's like, or any kid. Oh. The thought of uh, all those years going by. I mean, and it's the, a nightmare. At that sweet age, like of oh. three, which is like peak cuteness. Yeah. Uh, to suddenly have it all go away and then to just lose it. And then. You, because of something horrible he'd done to her mother. And yet, you could argue, and the same this is a horrible uh, parallel, because, you know, when parents divorce, you know, the worst thing to do is to get the kids involved in the parents' fights. You want to, you know, it's none of your business. It's none of their business. It's not the kids' business how the parents aren't getting along. Right. Daddy didn't leave because he didn't love you. Mommy didn't leave because she didn't love you. Uh, we're, we just, we need to move on, but you're our kids forever. She was his kid forever. And yet, and so that, I think, I, I, I held on with my fingertips to, to my fatherhood and his to keep my non-judgment of him as I kept writing. That was the connection. The, that was a connection. Yeah. And that's why I dedicated that novel to my daughter. I bet. And I mean, did you, and did you ever, like in, the, in the, the editing process, did you ever find places where you slipped and maybe you didn't, uh, you know, reserve judgment the way that you should have? No, uh, I kept, I, I, here's, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I found myself liking him. And I did work as a, as a counselor in uh, a halfway house with, uh, out of Colorado in my early 20s, Canyon City Penitentiary, which is medium security uh, penitentiary. We had killers and rapists and people who done terrible things. Now in the halfway house in pre-parole, I was a 22-year-old, uh, counselor, and early on in that job, I, I befriended, or he befriended me, an older guy. He's probably like my age now, um, who I really liked because he loved to read, and we would talk about novels. He was reading really good literary fiction, and and I was like, oh, this guy's so cool. This guy's so cool. And he was very quiet, kind of you know, sad eyes and a handlebar mustache, really western looking guy. And uh, and one day I read his file. And read that he'd uh, beaten to death his girlfriend's twin six-year-old boys. Holy shit! Swung them into the wall. Swung and bashed their brains in. Oh my god! And I and I I didn't talk to him for like a month because I had this horrible conflict. And this is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I couldn't deny that I still liked him. Right. But I hated what he did. Right. And I'd like to think that if I were in that house when I heard it. I'd kill him to stop it if I had to. And this is what I'm getting at, man. Life is complicated. Right. It is nothing but the gray. 
Flannery O'Connor also said in one of her essays that the job of the writer is to simply make actual the mystery of our position on earth. What does that mean? It means paint it. There are no good guys. There are no bad guys. And I have to say, as a reader, um, as a consumer of uh, film, you know, I, I turn it off or close the book if I feel that this is just an entertainment and there are villains. And I do not believe in villains. I do you do believe not, in evil? I, be- I do not believe in evil uh, polarized. I believe in there is no devil, there is just God when he's drunk. I think it's evil uh, to, to... Kill two six-year-olds. <laughs> to kill two six-year-olds. I think it's evil to, uh, you know, to let your... To, to let your own compulsions and addictions and needs make you cheat on your love or uh, steal from your workplace. You know, it's an evil act. But the one who didn't do it, the one who did it is not evil. I won't do it. Because once you do that, you are forever exiling that human being or those human beings into the cast of the enemy, which makes it easier for, for, for us to kill them, which makes it easier for us to forever call them the other. And to become them. And to become them. In doing so, we become them. And that is what I'm saying. There is, look, there's one, there's one area of, well, there are two areas of horrible behavior that I, I, I find really hard to imagine holding in, in me at all. One, I don't understand rape of a woman. I don't understand how a man can stay erect and, and create that violence. I, I don't fucking understand that. Right. I don't understand pedophilia. Yeah. I don't understand these afflicted creatures who get aroused at the thought of children. I I I want to Is banish. that a, is that a genetic thing? Like well, I, cause I that's don't what know. I that's what I think about. I'm like I don't know. Is it cuz it's like it was it nurture like they were abused and so then they're re you know that seems a little too simplistic. Is there something I guess my question that I ask myself sometimes is like is there something genetic that happened to them? in the course of fate and biology that has cursed them with well, well, this. Yeah, I just read a beautiful new, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a couple of years old, nonfiction book. Do you know The Fact of the Body? No. It's by Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich. I just did a talk with her a couple of days ago in Cambridge. The reason I bring it up, it's a, it's a fantastic book because she's, she was a young uh, law student, Harvard law student, who was against the death penalty. She goes down to Louisiana to do, do intern work with a lawyer. And her first case, the first man she's defending, is a pedophile child killer. Ugh. The worst, right? Yeah. Yet, working with him, it brings her back to her own abuse at the hands of her grandfather. And so the book, it, I've never read anything like it. It's, it's like a true crime. What's it called again? Uh, the Fact of the Body. The Fact of the Body. Highly recommended. Um, Flatiron books. So alternating chapters is, you know, young law student, pedophile child killer, you know, true crime. And the other is this incredibly well-written memoir about her own grandfather sexually abusing her as a young child. And and what I'm getting at is what became clear to me after finishing this book is that there's so many studies have shown that pedophilia is is a personality disorder, is, is inherited, and that unlike what we commonly think, yes, a lot of pedophiles were abused as children, but not a lot more than the general population. So it does seem to be a, a general thing. But this speaks to our larger point about what to do with evil, what do you do. There's, to me, nothing more evil than that. There is nothing more evil than 
than an adult raping a child. I, what's more evil? Um, or an adult raping a woman. Um, and, you know, one of my friends uh, in my little town where I lived north of Boston said, what would you do if you found out you had a pedophile in your neighborhood because the police just issued the, you know, class three sex offender and we got one across the street. And he had three young kids, you know, under the age of 10. And this, and this is what I'm getting at. It's complicated. Part yeah. of me thinks these poor afflicted fuckers should be on an island somewhere. Let's make a penal colony for them. Or get, like, serious mental health care. I don't know if they can change. There's been so much documentation they may not be able to change. I don't know if right. they can. But what I'm getting at is I'm trying to I'm, – I'm, I'm embracing the gray here. Parby thinks, all right, put them on an island, yeah. give them their own movie theaters, their own restaurants. They can all hang out. They, you can never leave. So part of me is thinking, okay, I'm trying to give you a life you can have. You just can't be around kids. But the other part is, and I said this to him, I said, if I lived across the street, if you knew I'd walk across the street, and I would. I'd knock on the door. I'd say, hi, I'm so-and-so. You're so-and-so. I live across the street. If I even catch you look at one of my kids, I'm going to burn your house down. I'm going to kill everybody in it. And I mean, I'm not proud of saying this, but see what I'm trying to tell you? Yeah. I hold both inside me at all times. Compassion for him, wanting him to have a life somewhere, but do not cross me. And, and these, these, these goddamn ugh, jingoistic, evil-spouting, gun-toting, I'm not putting down a whole group of people. I mean, you know what? I, I used to have guns, too. I hate them now. Um, it's so easy to call one group evil, but as soon as you call one group evil, uh, just what we were saying, you, you've, you've now, you're now at war. We're now at war. And, you know, I just read a beautiful, I finished a beautiful World War II novel today called Peace by Richard Bausch. I don't know if you've read it. Mm-hmm. He's one of my favorite contemporary American fiction writers. And it's about, you know, just young men at war in Italy. And you, you, he does what the writer's supposed to do. He captures it all. They're all boys and men. They're all just trying to survive. They're all, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to re, be respected. Everybody and, wants to go home. Everybody <laughs> wants to go home. Everybody wants to have a home. Yeah. And so, you know, these things haunt me to no end. Um, but do you, you hear what I'm trying to tell you, Brad? I, I have a. I've always had a short fuse, and and I and I have, but I, I I have a short fuse for cruelty, and and um, abuse and injustice. Um. But if I'm going to write from the point of view of a hedge fund manager, and by the way, they've still walked away. No one's doing time. Madoff right. did time, but he was a con man of a different sort. He also you know, robbed rich people. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about these guys who are still sitting on $100 million boats who have still – they're never going to be held accountable. Um, but if I'm going to write from the point of view of one of them, I must suspend all the hatred and judgment I have. And I think that's the writer's job. And I, and I think that that's the reader's job. That's what's great about being a reader of literary fiction. By ca- literary, all I mean is character-driven, where you feel the writer trying to capture something truly. I think it enlarges us and makes us more compassionate people. And by the way, all this violent, short-tempered talk, my favorite word in the English language is compassion. And you know what it actually means when you break it down etymologically? I've, I've read this somewhere, but it's slipping my mind. Calm with passion. You know, they, they talk about the passion of Christ. Well, that's his crucifixion. 
to suffer with. Right. Passion is suffering. Right. And to me, I'm sorry, whatever we need to do to do that all day long and all night long, I think that's the way to go. I was going to say, there's something very Christian. I mean, we, I think yeah. we talked before we came on about how, uh, you know, or no, we were talking about believing in the divine, but not having like an affinity for organized religion. Right. And yet there's something, there's a lot of Christianity and in, in other religions like at, at their best, I think, in what mm-hmm. you're saying, which is, aren't they all the, all well, the, I, you know, look, I, you know, I've, I haven't read the, the Torah, um, but I, I, yeah, I think there's more of that. But sadly, in every monotheistic, the three big monotheistic religions of, of Judaism, Christianity, I think it's more, well, I'm, sp- I'm speaking in some degree of ignorance here, but I think there's more excuse for bloodletting in uh, Christianity and Islam than maybe Judaism. I, I'm, I, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Those Old Testament gods were pretty vindictive. Here's the thing for me about organized religion. And I, you know, my wife is a devout Christian. My wife's a beautiful, we've been together 30 years. She's a choreographer and a dancer and a painter and beautiful soulmate of mine. But she's also a devout Orthodox Christian. I mean, for years she said the New Testament beside her bed. You know, I... Um, and you were raised? I was raised Catholic until my dad left, and then, you know, kind of left with him. And so I've, I don't really feel an, aff- an affiliation for any any church. I, I do. I am just so haunted. Let me just... Again, it's complicated, right? It's mm. important to speak about complicated things. I have many loved ones who I, whom I know... Um, are greatly comforted by organized religion and the and the ritual of church or or synagogue or um, my Muslim friends who actually pray. You don't need a, a mosque for that. You can do it anywhere five days a week, five times a day. But my, but I, I just it's never spoken to me. And and I and for the, all those millions of people who are comforted by religion and who actually use it to try to live a more loving life. God bless you. I'm with you. Like I will say, God bless you. Yeah. Even though I do not believe there is a God, even though I don't believe there's a God who knows my name who's looking over me. But Brad, I don't know about you, but since I became a dad 25 and a half years ago, I have prayed like 12 times a day. Right. (laughs) And I even do the sign of the cross, and I'm not a Christian. (laughs) Right. But I believe there's something going on. Sure. You know, one of my favorite lines from Tolstoy, he defines art in one sentence. One sentence. Art is transferring feeling from one heart to another. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. All it is is you've got to make me feel something. And I would submit to you, brother, there's only one thing and one thing only that's ever going to make anybody feel anything, and that's truth. Not the big truths about capitalism, democracy, love and death, war and peace. Small truths like if I can capture what it's like to wake up hungover in the bed of the boy I just cheated on my girl with, a boy with, in 1947 Detroit. It may say something about marriage in America. If you can just capture the particular, you can say something about the universal. And that has creatively turned me on for all these years. Well, I feel like it's, uh, you know, you talk about people who draw comfort from uh, the ritual of going to church. Uh, you draw comfort from the ritual of reading and writing. I do. That's your church. 
That is literally my church. In fact, I used to go to church with my wife and kids when their kids were little. And I start. I built my house with my brother, and so on Sundays I would start to write. Now Sundays I just. I. I my wife goes to church. I give her a kiss, and I read all morning. That's it. Yeah, and I read usually novels. Well, you know, but it, like I'm always a better. I always feel better when I'm reading mm-hmm. reg- regularly, and I wish I read more. Um, mm-hmm. Like you know, I get books into, on tape, man. While I, you're driving, I do. I do. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing, though, and, and it's good, but it's not the same. As right. having like that three-hour block, you know, if you could ever get it. Um, at the stage of life that I'm in, it's just difficult. But well, yeah, but you, your kids are young; it'll get better as you get older. Yeah, and just I just notice it when it's gone, and then you know when it's there, I notice that too. But it brings it brings something real. And you talk about comfort, but it's also healing. Uh, you know, it, you, you don't want to sound corny, but you're a living proof of it. You know, you had this really violent, difficult youth and you put pen to page. You started reading. Yeah. And I mean, it's, that's it brought me to the path of peace. It literally did. Yeah. And so it's like, I really do believe that reading and literature is a cause, uh, like worth fighting for, not, you know, Violently, but yeah, it's not like, violently. Hopefully, but or like a cause worth, ed, like working to advance, working diligently to advance, because the more people who get on board and who start to read and uh, inhabit other lives and cultures, I mean, it's it's. But know. it's also immensely pleasurable, right? Yeah. One of my favorite lines about this, and it's interesting. I heard another view too, but. The writer Janet Burroway said, look, when we readers go to the novel, what we're saying to the novel is, give me me, which is beautiful, right? I, you know, I've got, I've got, I teach at University of Massachusetts, and I've got a very diverse classroom. I've got young men from Zimbabwe. I've got an Irish gangster. I've got a Cambodian kid. I've got all these people. And, um, and we have these conversations about how, like my guy from Zimbabwe, felt more like himself than he ever did reading about uh, reading a Susan Minot story about being a prep school promiscuous prep school girl at 15 with a bunch of white kids you know this whole notion if you just illuminate human truth it's it it resonates with all of us and and that's what's so beautiful about humanity we we share so much more than we don't share and and it's you know I just think it's incumbent upon us to live as large a life as we can. Sadly, in our capitalistic culture, in our narcissistic culture, in our social... One of the big reasons I don't do social media is I think it's it's made everyone the curator of the museum of me. Me, 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 and more me. And I know there's more to it than that, but I I, I think it's it's really put us all in a trance and... And, and made us far more self-involved than is healthy for us or the planet. And the thing about reading is, it's the opposite, man. Okay, okay, I know, I know you got your problems, I know you got your challenges, God bless you, but, you know, right now, you're a young girl in Sudan, and your father needs you to get the water. Right. This is so good for people. Yeah. You know, or you might be a corporate lawyer snorting coke in your boardroom getting ready to go see your third mistress of the week and your wife's calling depressed on meds from one of your four houses and even this is good for you 
Yeah. You know, although I don't want to write about <laughs> Who But knows see, the... I didn't want to write about this going to say <laughs> other guys. So now Jesus, you just I think we just birthed the next novel <laughs> by Andre Debus. Oh my god. So, uh I can't let you get out of here without talking to you about um being the son of a writer. I know you've tread this material a million times, but it's interesting to me. Uh I know it's of interest to my reader or to my listeners. And uh, I think of like, uh, in terms of my past guests, I'm racking my brain. I know I talked to Owen King, yeah, who's uh, dad, Stephen King. So yeah. he's a writer you might have heard of. And Joe Hill's brother. Yeah, and Joe Hill's brother. So yeah. I mean, I've talked to a writer who's been in a situation somewhat similar to yours. But, mm-hmm. you know, your father, Andre Debuse, is uh, like one of our finest uh, fiction writers. Absolutely one of our finest. I mean, called by many critics uh, quite aptly America's Chekhov. He was a great short story writer. And so I think that that, I mean, obviously the apple doesn't fall far and, and may, maybe you inherited some, you clearly inherited some sort of literary gift, but the pressure that I would imagine it comes with to have the bar set that high by your own dad. Yeah. You know, like how do you cope with that? I'm glad you asked because I'm glad you gave me a chance to talk about my own little struggles just as a human being. Because I came to writing the way I did. Well, let me just back up. I, I have a genius brother, Jeb, um, who taught himself to play classical guitar, Bach preludes, when he was 13 years old, by listening to Segovia albums in his room. He would l- figure out the chords listening to records. Jesus. The pictures he drew when he was eight or nine, you could hang in an art gallery. He designed my house that he and I built with our bare hands, and I had to bring it to a structural engineer to get the... Uh, the permit to build, and they changed nothing. I mean, he's he's a bona fide genius. So when I was growing up, and my sisters were growing up with Jeb, he got art supplies on his birthday, guitar strings, canvases. I'd get underwear, a sweater. <laughs> you know, my sisters would get the same boring shit. I remember having this sentence in my head when I was like 10 or 11 years old. I said, oh, Jeb has an imagination. We're just normal. And that was a crime I did to myself because, and every kid gets an imagination, every kid. What I'm getting at is it was less my father's shadow than my, it was my brother's that kept me from creating for a long time. I thought, no, Jeb's artistic. I'm just normal. But when I began that, so that night that I described, instead of going to the gym to train for the Golden Gloves and down low, and I'm writing, then I was hooked, and and but I was like a lot of kids. I was ignorant about what my dad did. I don't know. He I know he writes and does shit, but you know he's my dad. You know you don't care what your dad does right. or your mom. And um, I sent my first story out as Andre Debuse. No three on it. No middle initial. You know, and <laughs> and it got soundly rejected. And you know, a couple times it did that. And you know, I got I got a horribly, and I got this for like a decade. This is the same name of a master, but samely not the same quality. And it, and this this went on for like a decade or and a half. And I, you know, then I began to read more of my father's work, and and I realized what an incredible master he was. But I have to tell you the truth, man. Whenever I went to the desk, which was five six days a week, I never thought of him ever. Huh. I didn't think of other writers Why? either. I think because writing saved my life. I was holding on to the fucking cliff with fingertips. Yeah. It got me out of the bar room in the street. 
And I just loved doing it. I didn't have any career aspirations. I just wanted to write. And after I've been doing it for five, six, seven years, I said, well, I want, it'd be nice to publish one because I'm, now I'm reading all this stuff. I think I can publish one. So when I finally began to publish, I got all this daddy stuff, stuff like, oh, I see you published your first story in Playboy, which I did. Um, did your dad help you write that? No, he didn't help me write that. You know, and, and actually, I sent it all over the place. My first book went to fifty-nine publishers, thirty-nine publishers. Sorry, over five years. My second book went to twenty-nine publishers. My third book went to twenty-four publishers. Over like eighteen years, I had ninety-three publishers say no and three say yes. I think more doors shut. And the truth is, and this is what I'm getting at, it it saved me in a lot of ways. Um, it became clear to me that the world's never going to pay attention to what I'm doing every day because I'm the great one son with the same name. And, you know, this is not easy. It was painful. But I realized I didn't care. I realized that a day writing badly was a hundred times better than a day not writing at all. You know, my second book, uh, the novel Blues Man, came out in 93, and the Library Journal wrote a very nice review of it. And they said, by the author of, and he listed all my dad's books. <laughs> And they basically robbed authorship from me. This book I worked on in a construction van at four in the morning, six days a week on the way to construction site while my buddy drove the radio off. And, and I realized I don't care. I know there's a wonderful line from the writer Thomas Williams. He was asked, why do you write? He said, oh, that's easy. I write so I don't die before I'm dead. So for me, the reason... It has not, so it was rough for, for a while, but it was only rough when I was trying to send work out. It was never rough at the desk because I was not thinking about being a writer when I went to the desk. I was thinking of just trying to be these, these nearly sacred beings called characters coming to me through my pencil onto the page. And it's very important, and I say this in writing conferences all the time, too many times we writers, we have that that C word in our head, career. I tell them to cast it out, cast it out. I teach a 14-week semester at University of Massachusetts, uh, one hour, I mean, one class, three hours a day. I save the last, I save uh, f the 14th week, the last hour of the last workshop for 20 minutes, you can talk about publishing. It's not allowed to ever come in the conversation until the last 20 minutes of the 14 weeks. Because if you don't put 99% of your work into being a writer, there's no, there's no author, there's no career. I want to say one more thing about it. I think if there's any one enemy to human creativity, it's self-consciousness. I was just going to say, yeah, you, like I think one of the reasons why you're, you have, you were able to work, uh, despite, you know, like having this, like, you know, uh, very accomplished father in the same field. Yeah. Like a, you like you said, you were hanging on by your fingertips, yep. and it was saving you, and you you felt that. Yeah. But also, your work uh, is outwardly focused. You're inhabiting characters. You're not like, it's not like you're, um, like some people, some fiction writers, like autofiction. You know, it's mm -hmm. like really they're really exploring themselves. Like you were really inhabiting others. Yeah, and, and can I speak to that? Because it's 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 the thing that I love most about being a writer. You know, Faulkner was asked late in his life, what's the main thing the writer needs to, to do what you've done, sir? He said, well, I used to think it was talent, but I don't anymore. And he narrowed it down to one quality of mind. Do you know what he said? It's, a, it's I love this. 
He said, no, you know what it is? It's curiosity. And his exact phrase was insight, to wonder, to mull, and to muse why it is that man does what he does. And if you have that, then talent makes no difference whether you have it or not. So because what's fueled me, I never want to be a writer. I never want to be an author. I never want to publish books. Um, I just wanted to live. And when I discovered creative writing, when I discovered reaching for a pen and paper and trying to step with with empathy and lack of judgment into the life of another, when I discovered that even when that life is dark, as in Daniel and Gone So Long, um, it's immensely pleasurable. There's a, there's an immense letting go of the self and, a, and, a, and an enlargening of the spirit that is addictive. And um, I always emerge blinking in the light and ready to go back in again. But the, the, the whole fuel for it is a genuine curiosity about what it's like to be someone else. And, and I think that that, that is um, also what pulls me as a reader, is that same thing. Hmm. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. I man. know you're on like East Coast time and you're on this big tour. I appreciate you uh, stopping over here. And uh, congratulations on your book. Thank you. And on uh, all of your success as a writer. And uh, I wish you well. Thank you. I wish you well too, Brad. means a lot. Okay, that's Andre Debuse III. His new novel is called Gone So Long. It's available now from W.W. Norton and Company. You can find him online. His website is andredebuse3.com. He's got a Facebook page track him down the novel again gone so long go get your copy Andre Debuse the third thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music thank you to uh, Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music if you'd like to write to me you got something to say letters at otherppl.com letters at otherppl.com if you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. It's free of charge. Get the app on your phone. So, what can I say? It's almost uh, election time. We're like a week out at this point. Do something. Make sure you vote. Bring friends. Vote blue. Let's put a check on power, shall we? It's very important. Don't let it slide. Volunteer if you can. Do some phone banking. Write a check. Because really, it's like, how much is the country worth to you? How much is uh, sanity and liberty and justice and civility worth to you? Because that's what's at stake. It's not an exaggeration. I don't mean to get preachy, but we're a week out. Make some noise. Make your voice heard. Get to the polls. Make arrangements. Bring friends. Especially if you're in a state or a district where you can really make a difference. I think I'm going to go in and try to take a nap with my son. 
That's like a new thing. We try to like nap together. I'm not really a good napper and, and neither is he frankly, but sometimes it works. And when it works, it's the greatest thing, greatest thing on the planet. It's one of my goals is to become a better napper, to become effective at it. It's the scale of my ambition at this point. Sleep is a drug. I was talking to my daughter yesterday and out of nowhere she told me that her favorite smell was Barnes and Noble. Anyway, I hope you guys are doing well and uh, I will be back next week. Got some good episodes in the pipeline. Happy Halloween. Wait a minute, I think this is the Halloween episode. This goes live on Halloween. Damn it, I should have said something in the front, in the monologue, but I failed, so I'm saying it now. It's hard for me to keep track of days, I don't have a costume. My daughter's going to be a hippie, and my son is going to be uh, Daniel LaRussa from The Karate Kid, which is his favorite movie at this age. He's three. So we got him like the karate outfit with the uh, bonsai tree on the back and the headband, the whole thing. Okay. Okay. <laughs>